If you brought your Bibles today, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 or grab one in the pew in front of you, 1 Corinthians 6. It'll be on the screen in a minute, as you probably know. At the time of the writing of Paul to to, to church at Corinth, AD 60-ish, there were five really important cities at the time. The five most important cities, history tells us, were uh, Jerusalem and Ephesus and Antioch and Athens and Corinth. If you're playing, if you're down at the pub playing trivia and someone asks you what was the first democracy in the history of the world, you know the answer is Athens, the city of Athens. But Corinth was a pattern themselves in many ways after Athens and historians believe that it actually surpassed Athens in terms of its influence and its, uh, its importance. And in this world, uh, there was a democracy, there was elected officials, there was a political process And it was a thing of beauty and a thing of debate and a thing of tension. Imagine that. I want to show you two uh, quotes from historians looking back at Corinth and the world of Rome and Athens and Antioch and such. The fondness of the Athenians for litigation and their never-failing abundance of lawsuits and political processes caused the art, and I love this phrase, of forensic eloquence to flourish. It didn't matter sometimes if you had the best argument. It mattered uh, how you presented it, how persuasive were you in presenting your evidence, the uh, art of forensic eloquence. Another historian put it this way, looking at that world at the time, Roman society was not, I'm sorry, was notoriously litigious and Corinth with its rising class of nouveau rich was even more so. Lawsuits addressed property matters among the wealthy. Some grievances were simply pretexts for avenging insults and pursuing enmity. Now, we're not going to be anti-law or anti-lawyers today. I read some um, lawyer jokes afresh, but I don't want to stand up here and give those lawyer jokes to you because uh, we have lawyers who give to Fondra Church, and so I'm not stupid. Uh, But I will quote Willie Nelson, who uh, in the country song in the late 70s said this, mamas, don't let your babies grow up to be cowboys. Don't let them pick guitars or drive them old trucks. Let them grow up to be doctors, lawyers, and such. The idea of Willie Nelson's song, a collaboration, I think, with Waylon Jennings, is that doctors and lawyers are a reputable uh, profession. Uh, They do good. And I want to make sure that you understand that today, that uh, law and lawyers can be such a a, a good thing. Like anything, it can be distorted. It can run amok. And uh, it can be a society that uh, maybe has too much or whatever. But uh, doctors and lawyers uh, should be respected. The law should, should be respected. But in in this uh, writing that Paul has given the Corinthians, he says that something's wrong here. Something uh, is awry. Before the first service, the 930 service, some of the guys, some of my brothers in Christ gathered uh, behind me in my office and they circled up and prayed for me. They got close to me today. They laid their hands on me. And one of them kind of walked in late and just picked up mid-prayer. And he prayed this prayer almost verbatim. He goes, Lord, first of all, thank you. It smells really good in here. And I had just put on a lot of cologne, apparently way too much cologne. And so I made uh, John Hurdle's prayer. He prayed it out loud. God, it just smells so good in here. But I, I put on a lot of cologne and it smelled good. But Paul's writing to the church at Corinth in chapter 6. And he's saying, man, it doesn't smell good. There's something that stinks. There's a, an aroma in the air and it's not a good one. So let's look at what he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 6. Uh, I'm going to read from my Bible because I got my glasses on my bald head. First one, if any of you dispute, I'm sorry, if any of you have a dispute against another, how dare you take it to court? 
before the unrighteous and not before the saints. I'm telling you, it doesn't smell good, he's saying. Or don't you know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the trivial cases? Don't you know that, you will, that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have such matters, do you appoint as your judges those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there's not one wise person among you who is able to arbitrate between fellow believers? Instead, brother goes to court against brother and that before unbelievers. As it is to have legal disputes against one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves do wrong and cheat and you do this brothers to brothers and sisters. So a few things about this. Paul is saying that this is, this is to your shame. Now, in this verse that we just read, he talks about how we judge the world. And you, if you've been here in these weeks, you probably said, well, Robert, what are you talking about? Because back in chapter 5 and previously in chapter 4, you talked about how the church is not to judge the world. In fact, Paul says that we, we need to judge ourselves, uh, in, not in terms of being judgmental and sanctimonious and self-righteous, but to judge in the terms of discerning error and confronting in love people with the truth. So th- we need to judge in Inside the church, brothers and sisters, not the world. Chapter 5, verse 12, God's got the world. God judges the world. Save yourself some time and energy and don't worry about judging the world. Let's look in God's house. Let's look at each other and our own lives, Paul would say. But now he's talking about judging uh, the world. But what he means there is he's saying that there's a time coming. He's talking about, uh, we, won't, we won't delve into it deeply at all today, but there's a, co- a time coming after the resurrection of the dead, the consummation of everything, when wrongs will be made right, uh, when eternity will really, really begin, where the saints, everyone in Christ, will be judges. And he's writing and saying, don't you know this? But, he, but he's backing up and saying, um, how can you one day be the judge of angels uh, and the world and not be able to handle the, uh, you handle these weighty future matters in the world, but you're unable to arbitrate between uh, trivial things in this present world. He says it's shameful. It's shameful because you're taking each other to court. It's shameful because you've let something small be provoked into something big. You ever watch Judge Judy or any of these shows? My wife does. She was in here at 930. I picked on her a little bit, but I catch her watching Judge Judy uh, uh, an awful lot. And I'm worried that Judge Judy will rub off on her because Judge Judy don't play. Judge Judy sees what's wrong. Judge Judy will call you out. Judge Judy will send you out. So I'm just praying that Judge Judy doesn't rub off on sweet Susan. But you ever seen those cases where she's like, <sighs> she, she's hearing the dispute and she's not on either side. She's on the side of them getting out of the courtroom and like, why did you bring, like this is in, a, in essence small claims court, but you're bringing this stuff to me. Just get out of here and settle it on your own. This, this is shameful is the posture that she has, the tone. And I feel like Paul is writing and saying, man, it stinks and it stinks because you're bringing reproach, you're bringing shame. There's matters that you ought to handle inside the church, but you're letting it spill over outside the church. And notice Paul says, this is very important to note. Just as we want to um, look against a society that's um, um, too lawsuit friendly, shall we say, where people are taking each other to court, just as we want to respect lawyers who who are specialized, they're educated, they're technical, they bring an important skill set needed for complicated issues, to untangle business ventures, to solve matters of injury where people have been uh, 
uh, who people have committed injustices and crimes and whatnot. We need lawyers, uh, no doubt about that, and need a little background ambience noise as well. We good? We're good. Something. David, was that you on the belch, front row belch? No. Um, but he's saying it's shameful because, because you're letting the outside watch this. And he's saying these are small things. So what he's not talking about, or what, let me say this, what he is talking about is you notice he says trivial court. He says small matters, some of your Bibles say. So he's, listen to me real quick. Don't use this passage. No Christian, no church, no church leader should ever use this passage to say that criminal cases ought not to be prosecuted. So this is, understand, this is really important. This is only trivial stuff. This is stuff that you ought to be able to handle on your own. Arbitration, mediation, negotiation, before it gets to litigation. Handle these things among yourselves, and we ought to. And notice what Paul does. He says, do you not know? And he uses this question six times in this stretch of Scripture. Six times he says, do you not know? And I love what Paul's doing. It's great if you're a parent. It's great if you're leading a small group, if you're mentoring people, if you're a future preacher or teacher in the church. Paul is not only letting them have it about their behavior. He's confronting them in love. But he's saying, let me point you to your identity and to your destiny. And to your destiny, your identity is you're in Christ. Your destiny is here's the future. You will be judges of the world. Anybody that has the notions that heaven is passive and inactive and we're floating around on clouds with harps and just singing, look, no, 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 no. There's a future world and it's a buzz with worship and activity. It's a perfect world, but there, 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 we have a role that we play and we join in the rule and the reign of Christ. I don't understand it all. Read Revelation 2, read Revelation 3, read Revelation 20, read Jude, this little epistle. It talks a little bit about this, but Paul is saying, look, Look what awaits you. And you're going to judge weighty matters in the future world, and you're not able to arbitrate small, petty matters in this present world. It ought not to be this way. And it's bringing a shame, but he's pointing them to their identity and to their destiny and saying, Here's who you are. And notice in verse 7, he says, What if someone wrongs you? What if someone cheats you? Again, let me say, this is not criminal at all. We're not talking about criminal matters. There are certain crimes that go beyond this. In fact, look, this is the go-to passage with this. It's Romans 13. Let's go to it. Here's what he would say, affirming one of the institutions, the government that God ordains. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Verse 5. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. So Paul is saying God has established the church, God has established the family, and God has established government. And he is saying that we go to the government. We need to be part of the government. If you're wondering what's between verses 1 and verses 5 that I skipped over, for the sake of time, he talks about paying taxes. He talks about how we ought to be loyal uh, to our government, even if they don't pick up trash. Apparently, we should pay our taxes. I guess, maybe. But anyway, uh, he said, hey, there is a matter of government, and government is important. Okay, so what are we talking about? Let's get back to it. We're talking about stuff in the family of God fighting among ourselves. And what they were doing is, in this uh, 
litigious society of lawsuit after lawsuit. The church was becoming like the culture, and we've got to be careful. Now, next week, we're going to talk about PG-13+, plus about sexuality and the church and culture and what God really says. So we want to warn the parents a week in advance. We'll do it next week as well. It'll be a great time for 13 and under to be down the hallway. But here he's saying, y'all are going at each other, and you're, not, you're unable to resolve these things. There's a better way. He points them to their identity and to their destiny. And so I, I don't want to pass this up. I studied it this week, and I don't want to pass it up. I don't want you to miss this. He says, what if someone wrongs me? What is that? What if someone cheats me? And what is he saying there? Because I don't want you to be a doormat. I'm not saying be a doormat and let people walk all over you. And honestly, I know some of you, I, I don't say this is a joke. I know some of you are in therapy because let, you're letting people walk over you. And so I, I don't want to add to that pain. But what I do want to say is there's a time and place and probably occurrences in your life and mine where we just need to say, I can let that go. That's not that big a deal. Yeah, it's not wrong. I mean, it's not right. They, they wronged me. They cheated me. But it's not that big a deal. I got a friend in business. I got I to protect his anonymity here. But he runs a business uh, not too far from here. And some of y'all go um, engage with his business. And occasionally he gets uh, complaints in customer service. And sometimes the complaints are out in left field. But I've learned from my friend. He'll do this. He's like, well, ma'am, sir, what, what is it? Oh, so you think we owe you money? And they're like, yeah, you owe me. And many times he said, I'll just say to them, okay, uh, I don't think this is right, but I, we'll give you, we'll refund you the $48 or we'll do this. And here's what he's saying. He's probably just being a good businessman, number one. He's saying, I don't want to ruin the relationship. I want you to continue to shop here. So it's, I'm not going to argue over $48. But he's also saying, man, I don't want to lose the relationship. And if you flip that, some of you who are designed like a lawyer, whether you're a lawyer by trade or not, you like to win an argument to the point of losing a friendship. And I would like to ask you, to flip that and to say, man, I would rather keep the friendship than win the argument. And that's really what he says. So I don't want to miss that. That may sound like fifth grade to some of you, but we miss the simple things. A lot of times when life breaks down, it's not the razzle-dazzle, it's the blocking and tackling. And the blocking and tackling from 1 Corinthians 6 is that there just needs to be some times where you just let it go. And it, you can look past it. So here's what I'm asking you. In Jesus Christ, if you're a believer... Can there be times in your life when you've been wronged, you can just surrender your personal rights for a cause greater than yourself? And you know what that means? It means you've got to let go of the hurt. You can't let it build up, but you're reminding you, yourself, and others that you serve a cause greater than yourself. You're not just living out your dream or the American dream. You're a part of being a Jesus follower. And that means you look past it. I want to give you four things in the balance of our time today. These are really the four points of the sermon. I want to give you this challenge of the people uh, that we can be in Jesus Christ. The first is this. Believe what you preach about the nature of sin. Now remember Paul opens this letter with, you're called, you're holy, you're sanctified, uh, you're enriched in every way by being in the local church. Paul is saying, the church, every church uh, is messed up because every time you get a group of people together, there's a mess. And Paul's saying, don't, don't walk out because things are messed up. Double down and commit to the church. We, we did that. I did that before you in week one. Renew your commitment to the local church. If this is your church, renew your commitment. Don't let your pastor, your staff wonder if this is your church. Let us know by your attendance and your investment, by your joy, by the way you participate. Double down in your commitment for the local church. It's the glory of God. And the, this organization, 
organization is the one institution that's guaranteed to last. Not this local church. We could die tomorrow if we're not careful. But I'm just saying the local church, the church that Jesus has built, uh, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He said, and we see that. I didn't mention this at Easter, but it's amazing that this movement, this fledgling movement that began with 12 fishermen and tax collectors in Galilee on the North Shore uh, took root in the Roman Empire, the vast, uh, strong empire of the Roman Empire, and it, it, it grew. It's just remarkable. It had to be ordained of God. It had to be something that the world has never seen. And Jesus is saying it matters, but hold on a second. When people get together, we're going to have problems. Do you believe that? And here's what I love. I, I, my Bible's open. I won't turn to all of them, but let me just do a quick, quick, quick cursory scan. Go to the beginning of the book, Genesis 16. You'll see Sarah and Abraham. And there's a handmaiden, Hagar, this uh, Egyptian uh, handmaiden. And, and there's, a, there's conflict. And um, Sarah says, hey, she's looking at me with contempt. And then she points her finger at Abraham and says, you are the reason for my suffering. From the beginning of the book. And then we see the psalmist in Psalm 55 He's praying, Lord, take me away. If I had the wings of a dove, I want to get out of here. He's saying, get me out of here. Why? He said, if my enemies insult me, I could endure that. If, my, if a foe rises against me, I can run and hide. But it's my closest friend, it's my companion who's betrayed me. In Acts 15, verse 39, I should have had it on the screen, but it says that the, there arose a dispute so severe that they separated, they parted ways. And here's what I love about Genesis 16 and Psalm 55 and Acts 15. There are countless other examples, but I look at the Bible beginning, middle, and toward the end or the beginning of the early church, and I see that God did not want to hide the fact that we struggle to get along. And so here's what I'm saying, James chapter 3. For we all stumble in many ways. James chapter 4. What is the source of quarrels among you? Not are you going to have them, but what is the source? Like, y'all going to fight. What's the source? Get to the source. Get to the source of it. And what I love about this book is it doesn't prescriptively tell us to fight. It doesn't prescriptively tell us to look on someone with contempt. It doesn't prescriptively tell us to point our finger and say, you're the, you're the reason for my suffering. It doesn't point our finger and tell us to betray a friend. It doesn't point its finger and tell us, hey, here is how you should live and how the sharp agreements, disagreements that you should have and how you should part ways. But it does descriptively tell us this is what happened. And so for you and I, I'm saying for us to be healthy when it comes to conflict, that we need to believe what we preach about sin and who's got sin and how many times has your sin bumped up against somebody else? How many times have you been hurt by somebody else's sin? How many times has your sin Hurt another. The second thing I want to say beyond believing what you preach about the nature of sin is to be a part of the prayer that Jesus prayed. Jesus, here's what he did. He did something really remarkable. In John 17, Jesus put all of the eggs in one basket. And he said this. He said, I pray for these disciples. They were right there. He prayed for the disciples and he prayed that they would be sanctified through the word of truth. We're going to talk about that next week. How do you live clean in a culture that so often is not? What does purity look like with our hearts and our souls and our bodies, all of us? God, I pray that you would, they would be sanctified in the truth. Your word is truth. I pray for them and not only them, but those who would believe on me through their word. Jesus knew that this movement of love was about to take root and it would change the world. 
And so he, in that moment, prayed for you. He prayed for us. And he prayed this, that we would be one. And he says that the world would believe that the Father has sent me by their love and their unity. He put all of his eggs in that basket. In other words, our credibility depends on our ability to live out the prayer that Jesus prayed to the Father, that we would be united. Now think about the hurt. Think about the world. Think about the expressions that we have. Here's a few of them. When our hearts are not unified, we, we say things like this, you know, so-and-so has a broken heart. This couple that we love, where they split up, his heart is shattered. Uh, they fell apart. What are they doing? They're picking up the pieces. Uh, all these expressions, you've, you've said them, you've heard them, you've experienced them, or know another that's experiencing one or more of these right now. And in this middle of this brokenness, there's this invitation for you and I to add to the world love and unity. To add to the world love and unity. And can I say forgiveness? And remember what Jesus taught? Those who love much know that they've been forgiven a lot. And to know that, man, when, listen, when we point our finger at someone whose sin is greater or different than ours, we're losing already. And for us to say, oh, I have been forgiven. And when you know that you've been forgiven, oh, you love better, Jesus taught that to be true. Before he prayed this prayer in John 17 and John 13, 35, I bet a lot of you know it. You don't have to be a Christian probably to know this verse. He said, by this will all men know that you're my disciples, what? If you have love for one another. A couple of you heard me share the story, but when our kids were little, when our daughter Haley was really little, she was um, quite a, a moody girl and um, just amazing and cute red hair big blue eyes and sweet as she can be but sometimes she would you know get kind of up and down and I came in one day for a hug in the kitchen I just got home from work and Susan was in the kitchen and Haley was there and she, I mean she was this this high and I said come here give daddy a hug Haley wouldn't come to me she's like eh. and I'm like what have I done I mean I hadn't seen her all day what have I done did I miss something she's like, eh. and she was just having a little mood a little fit she, she was having so I was like I was trying I was going full frontal like come here give daddy a hug what's wrong sweetie and then something occurred to me I, I, I thought I'll do a different strategy and so I turned I turned to Susan and I started hugging on Susan and I started loving on her and I'll spare you some details but anyway it was it wasn't Song of Solomon but I was just you know, I was you know, I had a high-pitched voice and and it was you know I was just really cuddling with her and I was like oh you know and I was my voice and everything about it was saying oh yeah this is love this is love and what happened to Haley she quit her eh, in the corner and little Haley ran right over and her arms went right around our legs and she wanted in on it. And I have felt impressed by that, though happening years ago, that that's a picture of the church. Sometimes we walk out there like, we got love, we got love, we got love, come get love, we got love down at 3327 Old Canton Road, y'all want to be a part of love? And that's just weird, by the way. But we try to talk people into something. We're talking and we're talking, but look, when the world sees our love, they're drawn to it. When the world, a world that's hurting or moody or up and down or unsure, when they see people loving on each other, they're draw, you're drawn to it. Jesus knows that's part of the universal human experience. And people want in on that. And Jesus put his eggs in that basket. And can I say, like, number one from 1 Corinthians 6, don't go suing each other. But number two, listen, let's love each other. 
And let's forgive each other and let's look past small offenses and minor provocations into deep things and to matter, to focus on what really matters. And when you know, Paul is saying this, when you know your identity and you know your de- destiny and you follow Jesus and we walk out what he says, we don't need to be taking each other to court over these things. We can work them out ourselves. Third thing, I promise for, because a student, I'm sorry, become a student of your style of conflict and the part that you play. Those words I chose very carefully. Now, later in the letter, Paul's going to talk about how we're different. We're all a part of one body, but we're all very different, and we have different gifts, and that that includes a lot of things. We have different tastes and preferences and styles. And listen to me, you have a conflict style. You may not talk about it, but you have a conflict style. If you're married and you're sitting next to them, you know they have a conflict style. So just look at me. Don't look at each other. Don't elbow anybody. Just look at me. This is going to be awkward. But what, for real, what is your conflict style? What is your style of conflict? Do you avoid? Do you sweep it under the rug? Do you withdraw? Do you yell? Do you scream and do you cuss? Do you let them have it? What is your style of conflict? And then what part do you play? We oftentimes think that communication is just a, like one level. It's the speaker and the listener, it's the word. Speaker, listener, words. But it's deeper than that. It's deeper than that. In Proverbs 20, I don't have it on the screen, chapter 20, verse 5, it says that a wise person will listen and they'll draw out because what's inside of someone is, is a deep well, it's deep waters. Even that person you think is surface level and shallow, they've got something deep in them. They just have a hard time expressing it or they're afraid to tell you. But a wise person, man or woman, will draw it out. So let me give you a couple of communication theory ideas as we intersect it with scripture. There's a communication level called phatic communication. And then there is a word you more likely have heard, emphatic communication. So phatic communication is just the words that you say. It's your running jokes. It's your friendly banter. If you're close to someone, a friend, a roommate, or spouse, it's the way you finish each other's sentences. It's the facts and the things that you bring to the conversation. Everyday speech, emphatic communication is, you can guess this, it's big, dramatic communication. And here's what you'll learn if you've ever studied communication theory. You'll learn that it's the small conversations that set up the big conversations. So think of it this way. There's another level here. There's content, and then there's what I'm calling the climate. The content are the words that you say. The climate is the atmosphere of the relationship. Now, I would say, biblically speaking, that a big word to insert here is respect. It says in 1 Peter 2 that we're to respect everyone. Do you believe that? Respect everyone. Wow, I disagree with know, They believe this. They're this party. They're this way. They think this way. Respect everyone. Why? Because the base level is this. The common ground is that everybody has been created in the image of God. And so you can respect everyone at least for that. So respect everyone. But listen, if you're... if, if if I don't respect you or I perceive that you don't respect me, the climate isn't healthy. Are you with me? But if there's respect in that relationship, did anybody have a relationship? I mean, I hope there's a few marriages like this where you don't have to walk on eggshells. You could just, you could say almost anything at any time. It doesn't need like a, you know, three worship songs before you preach to them. You know, just, you can just say it. Anybody have a relationship like that? You ever known a friendship? Like it's so good. It's so freeing. But think about this. Think about the word climate. 
If it's 102 degrees outside, and I invite you to a crawfish boil on the back church parking lot. Now, notice Daniel Wagner leads our crawfish in March when it's nice and cool and the sun's about to go down. But let's just say I invite you in August to come to a crawfish boil. It's 102 degrees outside. Are you coming? Oh, yeah, there's my bro right there. He's coming. All right. Me and you, bro. But if it's 102 degrees, you're not going to want to be in an unshaded parking lot on asphalt eating crawfish. Uh, the, the climate, the temperature, 102 degrees, dictates probably what we're going to do that day. Are you with me? And so hear, hear me out. There's the content of your words. It's what you say, but there's the climate, and that is the atmosphere of the relationship. So people will tell me sometimes, they're like, preacher, can we talk for a second? I'm about to have a big conversation. And, you know, the emotions vary. The outcome is uncertain. There's a, a lot at stake. And I'm going to go, man, I've, I've written it out. What do you think? Give me some advice. How would you put it like this? And da, da, da. And I'm all excited about my word. I'm excited about, you can already see it, can't you? I'm excited about the words I'm going to say. And I'm going to tell them this. How short-sighted we can be. And I have found myself as I get a little bit older, a whole lot uglier and a little bit wiser. I found myself telling people, hey, what's the, what's the climate of the relationship like? Hey, before you go have this talk, tell me about the climate of the relationship. And can the climate support the content of what you want to share? And listen to me, if it can't, if it's not sturdy enough to do that, you know what I tell people? Wait. Don't have the conversation. Now, that's hard because you... Sometimes my friend, like they got a speech in front of them and it's hard to be patient. How many of you struggle with patience? I struggle with patience. And you just want to go win the day. You want to seize it. You want to have that. You want to be emphatic in the conversation, but it's wiser to wait, to build trust, to change the climate, to take your time. It may involve love and forgiveness and forbearance and understanding. I want to drop two Proverbs on you because Proverbs has a ton of wisdom. They're both from chapter 18, which says a lot about the tongue. In Proverbs 18, 19, it says, A brother wronged is more unyielding than a fortified city. Do you get that? Someone who's been offended, it, man, they're a fortress. They're defensive because they've been offended. And they're going to be very, very hard to talk to. And so... 13, verse 13 to chapter 18 gives us some good advice to answer before listening. That is folly and shame. Now, I get nervous preaching passages like this when my wife is on the front row. Thank God she was here last service so I can be a little more free. But no, I, admit to, I admitted to the church at first service. I admit to you now with her sitting there knowing that I'm preaching this. But I have had to learn this. And she will tell you a little bit of backslapping here, but I've gotten a lot better. But I sucked at early on. And don't say suck. I know we have some kids in church. That's not a good word to say. If you're a child, yeah, don't, don't say that word, kids. Um, but I wasn't good early on. I was not good early on with this. But the value of listening has added and added and added to the climate of our marriage. And so it is in every single relationship to listen. There's a, there's a project called the Harvard Negotiation Project. And these Harvard communications theorists have postulated that in our day especially, that no one is really listening. One writer says of the Harvard Negotiation Project says, we're all just trading conclusions. Go watch a talk show 
and go follow the comment section. Actually, don't. And you'll see that someone's mind is made up and another person's mind is made up and we're just trading conclusions. Does that give anybody life? I mean, that makes you want to do more than just go to court. That makes you want to strangle somebody. But what is your part and what is my part? What is your style of conflict? What part do you play? Listen, would you be open to changing the climate? And let me tell you something. I know we're supposed to talk bad about the church and be cynical about the institution, but let me tell you what I see. Front row seat as a pastor. I have seen and I am seeing miracles take place among people. Man, a front row seat to see relationships, that conflict. Man, it, no way. You, you could put a finger on the pulse and say, dead. And now it's back to life and it's bringing life. Number four, before we close, I promise four. Bless others in peace. I was just doodling some lawyer words. Here are some. Litigation, negotiation, mediation, arbitration. But the biggest one in the Bible is reconciliation. God is a God of peace. It's a part of his character. It's a fruit of the spirit. Romans 12, 18, as much as possible, live at peace with everybody. You can, you can't, you can only do your part. I, I preach this a lot. You can't do the other person's part. You can only do your part. So what does that mean? It means you've got to let go of the other person. You've got to trust God with that. You've got to let go and trust God that he'll take care of them. But you can only do your part as much as possible within you, your identity and your destiny, knowing who you are in Jesus Christ, following the path of Jesus, live reconciled. God is a God of peace. He says, Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Anybody that know the next part of that? He, in the Sermon on the Mount, when he says, blessed are the pure, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who mourn, uh, blessed are those who are persecuted. He always gives a promise. When he says, blessed um, are, are the peacemakers, what does he say? Anybody know? And they will be called the children of God. Man, people will know you're in God's family if you bring peace. When I was little, I had a friend named Ben. Ben was Jewish, and as a little kid, I'd go to Ben's house, and I noticed there was an inscription in their entryway, and it said, Shalom. And I asked Ben, hey, you know, what does that mean? And Ben didn't know. And ben would later fail his bar mitzvah, I believe. <laughs> but Shalom means universal flourishing. Shalom means peace and contentment and perfection. And that's what we are to bring. We are to be involved in shalom. We are being involved in the spreading of peace. Well, so-and-so wronged me. So-and-so cheated me. So-and-so's talking about it. So-and-so left. So-and-so. Listen, can you leave that to God? Can you leave that to God? And would you be willing to surrender your personal rights for a cause greater than yourself? Can I tell you that it's paradoxical, but that's where you'll find happiness? That's where you'll find happiness, by trusting God with that. Here's how Hebrews 12, 15 says it. I'm going to ask the team to go ahead and make their way up with minimum distractions. And let me read this passage. Make every effort to live in what? In peace with everyone and to be holy. And I love what, I love what the writer of Hebrews is doing, just like Paul in his epistles. Hey, holiness matters. Some of us, like, we read these things about peace. And we're like, just do whatever. But no, it matters how you live. Your choices, your decisions, it matters. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. How about that? See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God. We should be a family. We should look out for one another. Stop judging the world and let's look out for each other. And when we slide, and when we drift, and we're caught in sin, let's notice and in love, let's call each other out that, so that no one 
in this family misses and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. I know I'm talking to somebody and you thought you could hide your bitterness. You thought you could stuff it down and it wouldn't hurt other people and now you know it's defiled many. It's hurt other people. Collateral damage, the military causes it. Cause it. And we, we miss this. There's a show called Deadliest Catch. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's a, definitely a manly show. But uh, there's these guys, and they're, uh, they're out on the sea. They're on the Berean Sea off Alaska. And they are, they're going actual, literal, sleepless night after night. 40-foot waves, icy conditions. They're putting out these you know, 700 pots for Alaskan king crab. If you ever wondered why Alaskan king crab costs so much at Red Lobster, it's because these guys are sacrificing themselves. And there's one bearded guy named John, one of the guys on the show, beard, Polish guy, bearded, manly guy, real gruff. And I was watching this episode where John gets infected. There's all these crabs. And so there's tons of crabs and tons of infections. And his shipmates, when he gets, when he gets cut, the shipmates uh, show their concern by calling him a pansy. And so he just holds on to this because he, he wants to be tough in front of his bros. And he holds on to this infection. And um, I don't want to make anybody lightheaded, but it grew. And it grew like a, a water balloon. It was just puffed out and it was Pepto-Bismol kind of color. And it was just disgusting. And a nurse attends to him and says, you got to get to a doctor. And they, on the show, they show the medical treatment. They cut open this hand and pus is just everywhere. And they open it up. And they, uh, y'all come back next week too. And they, they, and, they, uh, and, the, and they open it up and they clean it out and they close it back up. And I'll stop. But I'm just saying way too many of us have gotten injured in our past. And we have held on to the infection. And we've been will, unwilling to open up and let it be cleaned. And it's a root, listen, it's a root of bitterness. And when your life is about a root of bitterness, you have missed the grace of God. And so in love, we preach the grace of God. And in love, we warn you about the root of bitterness. So can we let go of some things? And can we move toward other people? Because as a church, all the eggs are in this basket. Our love and our unity. Let me pray for us as you stand. Father, minister to us now before we go in this closing song about your faithfulness. I pray that we would see your faithfulness. Lord, stir something up in us. And Lord, let us care about how we love each other, specifically in how we promote peace and how we live to a watching world outside. In Jesus Christ, we pray. Friends, this altar is open for prayer. You come today if we can pray for you or if you just want to kneel and pray. Let's give God these few minutes before we go.